Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Now, this is part three of the Murdoch Murders saga, and so if you haven't, please go back and listen to episode 56 and 57. I am presenting this case in mostly chronological order, so it makes the most sense to listen to this in order, parts one through four. If you skip ahead, there's going to be things I reference or parts of the story that might not make sense. So go ahead and go back and listen to those uh, episodes 56 and 57 before you listen to this one. Now, if you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. And any donations will receive a shout out in a future podcast and a thank you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. And without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. So as I mentioned in the intro, this is part three of the Murda murder saga, and in parts one of two of the series, we introduce the many powerful members of the Murda family and how their legal influence over the five-county area in the South Carolina lowlands allowed them to gain money, prestige, and power. As it often does, this unchecked power led to suspicion after three fatal incidents that could be traced back to the family occurred in just a short amount of time. The first, a 19-year-old classmate of Buster Murdaugh, was found dead in the middle of the road around 4 a.m. Rumors around town ranged from a hate crime conducted by Buster because the victim was openly gay to Buster and the victim being romantically involved and Buster silencing the victim. As we left it, the case was a quagmire of uncertainty regarding the cause and manner of death and the mother of the victim was pleading with the FBI to look into the case. Then, in 2018, the longtime housekeeper of the Murdaughs had a workplace, quote, accident, end quote, at the family's hunting lodge. The Murdaughs originally claimed she tripped over the family dogs and fell and hit her head. She would die three weeks later from complications from her injury. After taking legal advice from Alex Murdaugh, the sons of the housekeeper unknowingly entered into a representation deal with Alex's best friend and fellow lawyer in a plan to sue Alex's home insurance for $4 million. Finally, in 2019, Alex's 19-year-old son, Paul, was driving a boat while extremely intoxicated. There were five other teenagers on board, and after he crashed the boat into a bridge pylon, two of the teens suffered severe injuries and one teen lost her life. Alex and his father made every attempt they could to disrupt the investigation into Paul being the driver of the boat to protect Paul from criminal charges and Alex from a slew of civil liabilities. Paul was charged and made his initial appearance on the charges where he would plead not guilty. Despite receiving what many perceived to be special treatment, it appeared he would finally face justice for his actions. However, that was until the evening of June 7, 2021. But before we get to that fateful night, it's important to cover a few other things that were going on during this legally turbulent time for the Murdaughs. We mentioned in Part 2, that the Beach family lawsuit was slowly working its way through the courts. Since there would be financial compensation as part of the lawsuit, lawyers for the Beach family had issued a motion for a hearing to discuss the financial empire of Alex Murda. 
This is common practice in civil lawsuits so that both sides of the lawsuit can understand the financial landscape of the defendant. The judge had ordered a hearing for June 10th, 2021 to consider the motion and likely would have compelled Alex to release all of his financials to the Beach family attorney. Sometime around early June, while preparing for this motion, Maggie Murda, Alex's wife, hired a forensic accountant to go through the family's financials. There were rumors that this was part of some pre-divorce planning on Maggie's part as she had decided to leave Alex and wanted to know the financial situation of their net wealth. Other rumors stated she had some idea that there were money issues and she wanted to know how bad the financial situation was. So before we actually get to what happened on June 7th, I think it was important for me to bring up some of this other stuff that's going on. So we fast forward from the the boating accident happens in early 2019 and now we're in June of 2021. And the wheels of the court system move slowly and we had to go through COVID uh, in 2020 at this point and a lot of courts shut down for several months. So there's a reason why it's, I should say multiple reasons why it's taken basically over two years to get to this point. But it's very common practice in these civil lawsuits where the attorneys need to know how much is available to go after in terms of damages. Now, I mentioned that the Murdaugh's own property, I think it was, they had eight of these sea islands, they had a couple different houses, and they had this hunting lodge with 1,700 acres of hunting property. But all that needs to be evaluated for its total value. But then there's going to be so many other things at this hunting lodge. They've got several ATVs. They've got a large gun collection. Uh, there's you know so all of that property needs to be evaluated. And then most importantly, the liquid cash, uh, bank accounts, and you know savings accounts and stock holdings and everything like that also needs to get brought into this overall equation now from the outside you look at the the murdas the number of vehicles they own boats properties etc i think it said you know the family often took private charter plane flights so from the outside looking in you look at this family and say you know they've got a, a ton of money but looks can be very deceiving as we found out in true crime many times and nobody to this point that I know of has tried to look into the actual finances to see are they sitting on a pile of money or are they living beyond their means. Now some of the documentaries and true crime I, I looked at said that after making a ton of money kind of in the early 2000s with those railroad lawsuits, like Alex hadn't really taken on several like many large cases so he wasn't basically providing a lot of income now being a major partner in the law firm he's going to get money from the law firm no matter what but from the sounds of it he continued to live a lifestyle as if he was making millions of dollars each year but he wasn't bringing in millions of dollars so there is belief that at this point most of this this quote-unquote empire that Alex has built is a house of cards. It's it's ready to fall down at any point, and he's got 
several hundred thousand dollars in credit card debt. He doesn't have a lot of liquid assets. He's pulling scams like the the one he pulled on, on Gloria Satterfield's sons to infuse cash into his lifestyle. Uh, you know, he needs these millions of dollars to support this lifestyle because he's not making that an in income anymore. And I th- think whether it was Maggie trying to s- divorce him, and there were rumors about that to the point that there was a rumor that she had visited a divorce attorney, but then there's counter information to that saying that nobody could find a divorce attorney that she had met with and people saw them holding hands together there was never any talk of them getting a divorce with close friends and family so people believe that was just something that was made up but even if there isn't a divorce there's still reason if maggie starts to suspect maybe this lifestyle we have isn't supported and it can be as simple as she goes to pay for something with a credit card sometime and the credit card gets declined because it's maxed out or she tries to get money out of a bank account and finds out there's no money left in that account and she might start asking Alex some questions and it's kind of like an affair that right away they might somebody might be able to explain a few things here or there but eventually when day after day more and more questions and more and more things don't add up the person might say enough's enough i need to get to the bottom of this and in the case of affairs sometimes people hire hire private investigators or you know look even more themselves and in this case you know it's said that maggie hired this forensic accountant to go through the family's financials and that's going to be a real quick way for her to find out the actual financial status of the family at that point and so all of this is going on i said in that very early part of june and that's going to lead us uh, and there's going to be this hearing on june 10th that this judge is likely going to tell alex and his lawyers and everybody that they need to turn over all these bank accounts these debt information this everything it might be so basically if this house of cards is really just a house of cards that's ready to crumble as june 10th approaches alex is probably under severe stress knowing that everybody's going to find out that he has no money that the money that he does have he's obtained through illegal means so he's under you know to say he's under a lot of stress that's probably an understatement or it is an understatement so but on june 7th 2021 a terrible crime occurred at the same hunting property where gloria had her accidental fall at 10:07 p.m a call came into the colleton county sheriff's office from alex murdaugh he was reporting the shooting deaths of his wife maggie and his son paul and while i could treat this case as the quote-unquote mystery that it was at that time there's so much information that we know now that it just makes more sense to explain what actually happened that day than than treat it as a as a who done it for now. Now it is reported that earlier that day Alex was trying to get Maggie to come to the hunting lodge. Alex's father Randolph III was in poor health and was expected to die from natural causes. 
She believed she would be coming to the lodge to say goodbye to her father-in-law before he passed away. Now, while Maggie was at an unrelated doctor's appointment, Alex is at his law firm, PMPED. The law firm had at this point noticed a series of financial discrepancies related to various accounts used for settlement money. And they start to realize money might be missing and the evidence points to Alex having taken the money. And I got all of this information. We're going to get into actual times and everything like that because at the court trial, all of the forensic phone information and vehicle GPS information was presented. And I think that's the best way to present this double murder is to go through the actual facts not jump into theories too much or again i could have presented it as how it was presented at the time but it just makes more sense to get to the nuts and bolts of it and cover the actual facts of what happened that day as the evidence would eventually show so while the Murdaws are away, a housekeeper at the property makes dinner and another employee stops by to feed the dogs and chickens. As the housekeeper left when this employee stopped by, he would later uh, testify in court that no one was around the hunting property and everything was normal. Now Alex is at the PMPED office for most of the afternoon and he leaves sometime around 6 p.m. He makes multiple calls to people that he later deletes from his phone, but records show the calls were completed, including a two minute and 30 second call to his son, Paul, and a roughly one minute, 30 second call to Maggie. And this is something we're gonna see. I'm gonna mention it every time it was mentioned in court where he makes these calls and then he goes into his call log in his phone and deletes it. And while, again, from a surface level, that might protect you from somebody realizing you made that call but you have to realize that the other person's phone is going to have a record of that call still and your cell phone company is going to have a record of these calls or text messages that are being sent so just deleting something off your phone does not make it so that that event cannot be found but we're going to see that he spends a lot of time deleting calls from his phone that he doesn't want investigators to see, but eventually they're gonna see all of them. Now sometime around 6.45, Alex arrives at the hunting lodge and around 7 p.m. Paul arrives to join his father. Now there's a lot of recorded activity on their phones and this includes when they did the data dump from the phones. You know, the health app on our phones is always measuring the amount of footsteps we take. That's how you can open up your phone, especially Apple phones go into the health section of your phone and it'll show you how many steps you took that day or, and it'll break it down to within time periods. And, and I know my phone and my Apple Watch will do this. Is if I'm out for a walk with a dog and I forget to start a quote-unquote walk, about 10 minutes into it, my phone will, or my watch will alert me saying, hey, are you are you going for a walk right now? Because it's it's constantly measuring the GPS data, and your steps taken and if it sees you moving at a constant pace for 10 minutes it's going to assume that you're on some form of exercise and ask you if you want to record a walk so all of that information is stored on the phone and when they go to do this data dump off the phone they're going to get all of this gps and footstep data and everything which is going to be huge in this case in terms of recreating what happened that day 
now and by 8 30 p.m maggie's phone appears to show her walking around the property at 8 45 p.m a snapchat video is sent from paul to a family friend about one of the family's dogs that appears to have an injured tail three voices can be heard on the video which are later identified in court by people close to the family as paul maggie and alex this is important because alex would later claim he had left the hunting lodge at this time to check on his mother and found the bodies of his wife and son when he returned there was never any proof of him leaving the property during this time and the video would later be used in court to prove that he was in fact at the property around the time the shooting was believed to have happened approximately five minutes after this video is sent both paul and maggie's phones are locked and never again accessed by their owners it is later presented in court that around 8.50 p.m. is when prosecutors claim Alex shoots Paul twice with a shotgun, once in the chest and once in the head, and Maggie is shot five times with an AR platform rifle, and two of these shots are to the head. So before we get into the post-shooting stuff, this Snapchat video, basically one of the dogs, they had four dogs, and one of the dogs appeared to have this injury uh, to its tail and so a family friend that I guess was pre-involved with the dogs uh, I think he's a younger guy but Paul sending him the snapchat video and he's trying to get him to you know capture the the injury to the dog's tail so he can to kind of diagnose it maybe over over the phone or maybe tell Paul what happened uh, to the dog's tail over the phone and so during the snapchat video that he sends to this guy you can clearly hear maggie talking about one of the other dogs has like a chicken in its mouth or something like that and you can clearly hear alex talking uh, uh, to maggie and making some comments and that kind of stuff so this snapchat video you know is is really a snapchat in time of about five minutes before the murder who's all on that hunting lodge property because again alex is going to make a statement he's going to make a couple different statements to police but he's going to try to establish an alibi he's going to try to distance himself from potentially being involved here but what he doesn't take in account is this snapchat video in which he's captured in the area in which maggie and paul are found deceased and roughly five minutes before it's believed that they're deceased and the reason they believe the shooting happens around 8:50 is first off alex's phone was believed to either be turned off or left in the house as there's no recorded activity on it between 8:09 and 9:02 p.m and he would later claim to be sleeping during this time period which is why his phone recorded no activity but that claim is obviously disputed by the video taken at 8.45 p.m. with his voice captured in the background. At 8.53 p.m., Maggie's phone is picked up by someone who is not Maggie as the face ID tries to scan the person with the phone and fails to identify Maggie. So what most people don't know is your phone literally records everything. It records when it's taken kind of out of what we want to call sleep mode, when it's moved enough to kind of activate as if it's trying to unlock. And so at 8.53 this happens, but whoever looks at the phone, the phone tries to read that face, it's not Maggie, and so it doesn't unlock. So investigators believe at this point, by 8.53, Maggie and Paul are both deceased, and Alec grabs her phone to look at it. And you'll often see too, with, especially with Apple iPhones, 
depending on what the person's settings are, they may have notifications on that main screen as to who's calling them or who's called them if they missed a call, text messages, and these text messages may just indicate you have a text message from somebody or it might have a short summary of what that text message is, again, depending on the person's phone settings. So somebody might be looking at Maggie's phone to see recent phone calls, any text messages, how, whatever it might be, because you'll still see that. You won't be able to go in and manipulate those because the phone's locked, but you'll at least see from the lock screen, you'll see these notifications. Now, Alex's phone shows a lot of walking activity after it is woken up or turned on at 9.02, and I, I couldn't find whether that period of activity, because it would have been recorded if he turned it off. So I don't think he turned off his phone. I think he just left it, say, in the house on a table or something like that, because it's not being woken up. There's no activity around it. But all of a sudden at 9.02, it quote-unquote wakes up. And the first thing he does is he calls Maggie at 9.04, but this is another call that would be deleted from his phone after the fact. And a minute later, he calls his ailing father in a call that lasts 18 seconds. But again, no record of the call is found on the cell phone. He then calls Maggie's phone again at 9.06, and there's no answer. However, it's said that Maggie's phone moves again at this time. At 9.07, Alex's vehicle leaves the hunting lodge. I think it was a Chevy Suburban, so I think it had like the OnStar GPS because they're going to get a lot of information about this vehicle's movement, speed, and all that kind of stuff. And all that stuff, when you have like an OnStar system or any of these vehicle monitoring systems, uh, police can get information about those records, and so they can track movement on these vehicles. So again, shortly after they believe the shooting occurs, Alex's vehicle leaves the hunting lodge. And this is again going to dispute his later claim that he was asleep and woke to check on his family and found them by the kennels. So at 9.08 his phone passes Maggie's phone location and the vehicle driven by Alex picks up speed as it leaves the property. He sends a text to Maggie's phone saying, going to check on him, be right back. And this is his attempt, I believe, to establish an alibi for the time of the murders. During his drive away from the property, he calls his other son, Buster, who's an attorney. He calls one of his brothers, and finally, another attorney friend of his calls him back, and they speak for about three minutes as he arrives at his parents' house. Phone data shows that Alex drove at a high rate of speed to get to his mother's house, reaching speeds of 74 miles per hour on country roads where the speed limit is 55 miles per hour. I think he arrived around 9.20 at this house, and it's said that his vehicle was stationary along the driveway for about three or four minutes before he called the caregiver, asked him to be let in the house, because he does that at 9.24. So I think he arrives to the property at 9.20, and at 9.24 he calls the caregiver to be let into the house and again that gps data says that his vehicle's parked along the driveway for about three or four minutes now the caregiver would later state that alex's mother was asleep during the visit and alex was on his phone for most of the time at 9 34 the man who was sent the snapchat video of the dog had not heard back from paul as he had requested paul take photos of the dog's tail to be sent to a vet friend of his 
So he texts Maggie and his text goes unanswered. So again, they're continuing to establish a timeline where you've got at nine, at 8.45, three people alive in the area of the kennels, which is Paul, Maggie, and Alex. And then after 8.50, you've kind of got this time frame of some of the phones being manipulated, but not by their owners. And then a series of what's going to be unanswered calls and texts. At 9.43, Alex leaves his mother's residence, and three minutes later, he calls Paul's cell phone. The call is not answered, and Alex deletes this call from his phone. A minute later, at 9.47, he texts Maggie's phone with a message, Call me, babe, and the text goes unanswered, and no call is made from Maggie's phone. At 9.53, Alex again talks to his attorney friend, but states he is almost home and would call him back. And again, Alex's car reached high speeds, this time 80 miles per hour, on the drive back to the hunting lodge. At 9.57, the man Paul was talking to about the dogs tries to call Paul, and there is no answer. He also texts Paul and receives no response. And at 10.01, Alex parks the vehicle by the main house. He switches between park and drive on the car five times in the following minute. And at 10.05, he drives to the kennels, and at 10.06, he calls 911 to report finding the bodies of Maggie and Paul. He would admit to touching the bodies to see if they were breathing, but when he makes the call, he is not near the actual scene of the crime. Now, it would take deputies approximately 20 minutes due to the distance, uh, this rural distance that this hunting lodge is at, to arrive on scene. During that time, Alex's phone logged over a thousand steps, and his car travels between the main house and the kennels at least once. He would make five calls to family members during this time and delete most of these calls after the fact. After officers arrive, Alex continues to call family members and friends and then delete most of these calls off his phone. Strangely, at 10.40 p.m., which would have been 15, 20 minutes after deputies arrive, he searched for a local seafood restaurant on his internet browser on his phone. At 10.47, his surviving son Buster calls him and they talk for three minutes. Ten minutes later, Buster called back and they spoke for another four minutes. And by 11.19 p.m., Alex's brother Randy arrives on scene. And at 11.47, Sled arrives to take over the investigation. Now, initially, Alex would tell investigators that he was asleep during the time the videos were made and that he woke up, left to go check on his mother, and returned and found his wife and son murdered. And due to the high-profile nature of the fatal boat crash in 2019, the family had received death threats, and members of Alex's immediate family would go on record very soon after the murders, stating they believed the murders were related to those death threats. The use of two different weapons, which was a shotgun and the rifle, would normally lead investigators to believe at least two different shooters attacked Paul and Maggie. And as far as the court records show, although several firearms were kept on the property, the weapons used to kill the mother and son were not located during the investigation. And this use of two different long weapons, as you call them, um, does bring you know, some different thoughts into this investigation. It wouldn't be as unlikely if you had somebody killed by a long gun and a handgun to think that it could be one killer there's 
people who are highly trained, whether they're military or law enforcement, if they carry some type of a long gun, say an AR-15 or a shotgun, and something happens, you have some type of a malfunction with the rifle, it's called the transition, where you go to your handgun that's usually kept in a holster on your hip or your leg, and you draw that and then you use that as your weapon because your primary one is down. So had one of the family members been killed by a long gun and one killed by a handgun, you could make the argument that it could have been one shooter. It could be two, but it could be one. But using two different long guns would lead most people to think that it's two shooters because a long gun usually requires two hands to shoot. You're going to put it in your shoulder. It's a shoulder-based shooting weapon. And if you're right-handed shot, it's in your right shoulder. Your left hand is supporting the weapon and your right hand is occupied pulling the trigger holding the pistol grip whatever it might be you can't feasibly have two long guns uh, unless you're watching some type of arnold schwarzenegger action flick you're not going to have two long guns that you're holding with one hand each and firing accurate shots with them so unless you've got one long gun slung across your back i mean there are you know, in the military, you've got snipers that will carry a, a designated marksman rifle of some sort or a sniper rifle and then have a backup of, of a M4 or something along those lines that they sling across their back just in case, you know, they go have to go from long-distance sniping to close-quarters combat. But it's just one of those things that it might it is probably was pre-planned for Alex to use two different guns to make it look like it's two different shooters. Now, as to how this went down, it's possible that he brought two guns with him and shot one of the family members, and then the other one came over to see what happened, and he sh- you know picked up the other weapon and shot the other one. It doesn't mean that they had to be shot at the same time, and investigators don't believe that happened, but. It's just one of those parts of the story that needs to be explained because on surface level, it looks like it's two shooters. Now later speculation would fall upon Alex and the minutes that he was parked outside his mother's house on the driveway before calling to be let in by the caretaker. Many believe he used this time to stash the murder weapons on his parents' property before placing the call to be let in. This theory was bolstered by the caregiver stating she saw Alex hauling in something in a blue tarp-like material into his mother's home in the days after the shooting. A blue raincoat was found in one of her closets that tested positive for gunshot residue. Investigators believe the blue tarp was this raincoat, and at some point the recently fired murder weapons were in the blue raincoat and then hidden on the property. As for the evening of the shootings, Alex would eventually testify that he was at the hunting lodge and awake before leaving for his mother's house. He would claim he lied to investigators because he was addicted to opioids at the time and he was displaying paranoid behavior. While the murder of Paul and Maggie were still being investigated, the opportunity to look closer at an old case presented itself. On June 23rd, SLED announced they would be looking into the 2015 death of Stephen Smith based on information obtained during their investigation into the double murder. The long-standing belief that the Murdaws were somehow involved in Stephen's death brought even more limelight to an already front-page story. But as of this point in the timeline, they had not released any further information.
Now, two months after the shooting, Alex and his lawyer friend, Corey Fleming, who's acting as his lawyer, agree to sit down with SLED to discuss some of the findings of their investigation and to ask Alex more questions. SLED investigators try to pin down detail of Alex's story that, that are inconsistent with the findings of their investigation. So first off, the timing of Alex leaving the PMPED offices. Initially in his statement to officers that day, he claimed he arrived at the hunting lodge around 5.30, but witnesses put him at his law firm past 6 p.m. And again, some of this stuff might seem kind of minor, but when you add it all up, it's clear that either Alex can't, couldn't that same day remember what he was doing earlier in the day or was purposely throwing the investigation off. Because there's a big difference between arriving at the hunting lodge at 5.30 and hunting at the arriving lodge, I think it was 6.45, like he actually arrived there. Now, Alex had told investigators it was Maggie who told them she was going to the lodge, but evidence shows it was Alex who asked her to meet him at the lodge. And it was later said by friends and family of Maggie that she didn't like the whole idea of Alex's parents and their health and all that kind of stuff. So she was reluctant to go visit Randolph III in the hospital or Alex's mother because she was suffering from Alzheimer's. That's why she had a caregiver. And so the idea that she voluntarily was going to go to the lodge and possibly visit with randolph the third who wasn't even at the lodge like it didn't make sense to investigators when alex told them the story originally and then they're able during that cell phone dump to find out it was alex who called maggie because maggie was she was at a doctor's appointment and then she was getting a, a manicure and pedicure i want to say or, or some type of a foot massage for sure i know she sent text messages that she was getting a foot massage so she was she had a bunch of stuff going on and it wasn't part of her plans to come to the hunting lodge it didn't sound like and something during that phone call that alex said to her i think they had a, a, either it was a minute and a half or the two and a half minute phone call one was to paul one was to maggie i think convinced her to come to the hunting lodge and we will never know what was actually said in that phone call but it's clear that whatever was said led Maggie to, to drive to the hunting lodge. Now there was another Snapchat video sent by Paul around 7.56 that evening and it shows Alex by a small tree and he's wearing a blue collared shirt and khaki pants. So it kind of looks like your business casual uh, lawyer but like the collared shirt's untucked and kind of unbuttoned. I mean it's, it's pretty relaxed business casual but it's clear that he's in this blue collared shirt and these khaki pants and after his arrest and you can see on the dash cam video you can see and during one of the in-car interviews that he's giving that he's wearing this white t-shirt and these shorts and investigators asked him to account for his change of clothing i think he later said that he had showered sometime after that video with the tree and he changed clothes after he showered but he couldn't really account for why he showered and it really didn't make sense in the timeline of events where you know this is eight o'clock he's in one line of, or one part of clothing 45 minutes later he's out dealing with the dogs in the kennel and in that time period maggie had arrived so phone and this is the time period where his phone is not active so it 
would seem more likely that he was out and about doing stuff than he was showering because most people will you know check their phone before they shower and then check the phone after they shower and and he was very connected to his phone always calling talking to people looking up seafood restaurants whatever it might be so it's very suspicious that he's wearing one item of clothing and roughly 50 minutes later his wife and son are dead and then you know an hour after that when he quote-unquote discovers the bodies he's wearing different clothing uh, he also originally told investigators that he was at his mother's for roughly 45 minutes to an hour but then the caregiver comes forward and says no he was only there 15 to 20 minutes and even his entire trip to his mother's made no sense because if you remember the caregiver would tell police that his mother was asleep the whole time uh it wasn't as if they contacted him to come visit her or do anything with her there was really no reason for him to make the drive that night he didn't even talk with his mother the caregiver said he was just on his phone the whole time so this is where most people believe he commits the murders takes the murder weapons to another location where he is predetermined he has a quote-unquote reason to be there he's trying to establish an alibi also likely getting rid of the murder weapons distancing them uh, from the uh, from the murder scene and you know and then he and then he's driving back and he may have just completely lost track of time and not realized he was only gone for 15 to 20 minutes because i think it was his intention to be gone longer to create a, a bigger alibi and he's also making sure that his wife and son are, are deceased and we've heard stories before where people are shot even in the head and they survive so if he's got to create distance and time away from the shooting and he thinks he's doing it correctly by this nap and this alibi of visiting but again that snapchat video is going to put him on the scene right in the middle of all of it and Alex is confronted about the video taken Paul by Paul with just three with three voices just minutes before the cell phone activity for Paul and Maggie stop. And at this point, which is again two months after the investigation, I don't know if his lawyers had seen or heard the video yet to to see how distinct his voice is on there, because he at this point claims it wasn't him on the video because he wasn't at the kennels around that time. So he as we say doubles down on his attempt to create an alibi for himself while police have evidence staring at them in the face that he was in fact at the kennels at this time and during the 911 call alex can be heard directing someone or something with here and alex claims no dogs were out of their pens and he had no recollection of saying that or why he said it and he also says i should have known during the 911 call but he says he doesn't remember saying that, but believes it was in reference to the threats he received from the media coverage about the boat crash. And when asked about the guns, Alex would later claim three shotguns are missing from the property, which maybe this is bad reporting, but it doesn't exactly line up with a shotgun and an AR-15 rifle. And they ask Alex what he thinks happened, and he claims he thinks Maggie was shot first, and this was because she was shot in the head or something like that but authorities believe paul was the first victim now there are people to this day 
that based on the two weapons theory and what he says on the 911 call, believe that another person might have been involved with this murder, that he may have hired someone. And we're going to find out that he's got a lot of friends in low places. So it is possible that he coordinated. But again, the police who looked through his phone really well, and Alex did a terrible job of hiding anything, unless he had a second phone, some type of a burner phone that he got rid of with the, the murder weapons, and that's why there's no activity on his main phone for that hour during the murders. There's no proof that he coordinated anything that day with anybody else, but again, there's also no proof that he didn't so it's it's one of those things some people to this day believe that it's possible that this was a murder for hire and that alex was either coordinated it and gave the weapons to two people and then he helped cover it up or he was actually the trigger man and that's based on him changing his clothing and, and some different things so things are looking pretty bad for Alex when it comes to his innocence in the double shooting, but things are about to go from really terrible to even worse. And that's because on September 2nd, PMPED, Alex's family's law firm, starts an internal investigation into money missing from the business accounts. This is after they find a suspicious check on his desk that was made out to Alex Murdoch to be cashed via a fictitious account he had set up with a consulting business that he had done work with the firm in the past. So he had this legitimate looking account. Basically, there was this consulting company that they would, you know, money would transfer between as they were doing work for him or whatever it might be. So he sets up this account to make it look like there's going to be money moving between PMPED and this uh, consulting firm. In reality, this account that he set up through his buddy that's the CEO of the bank is really just his own personal account that has nothing to do with this consulting company. And on September 3rd, Alex was called into the law office and was confronted with the results of the investigation. Alex admitted to taking funds and was asked to resign. He did so that afternoon. The full extent of the damages would not be learned for some time, but before we can wrap up some of the cases we've talked about so far, we have to take our last break in the series. And for the final part of this series, we will cover the events of September 4th, when Alex is shot in the head on the side of the road, the findings of all the investigations, the results of the trial so far, and the status of the ongoing investigations. But we will get to all of that in the next episode. And I purposely didn't dive too deep into the case. I think we'll cover some of the questions people had about this double homicide as a result of when we mentioned stuff in the trial. But again, that'll be all in part four, so... All right, thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. And that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.